John chapter 6, beginning at verse 14. When we continue on now through our study through the Gospel of John, we just came from the section that we know as the feeding of the 5,000, where Jesus, with five little loaves and two little fish, you know the story, by a miracle of God, he fed 5,000. Now, we say 5,000 people. Actually, it was 5,000 men. We don't know how many women and children on top of that, but just for sort of a handy handle upon that, we call it the feeding of the 5,000. It was an undeniable miracle. God showing his hospitality, God showing his care, his love, his concern for the practical needs of people on that time, on that place there near the Sea of Galilee. Now, when we pick it up at verse 14 of John chapter 6, we see what happened immediately after that miracle. Take a look. Then those men, when they had seen the sign that Jesus did, said, this is truly the prophet who is to come into the world. Now, I want you to notice the phrasing of that. They said, this is truly the prophet who is to come. They're actually drawing on an idea that's present in the Old Testament. In the book of Deuteronomy, it is recorded for us that Moses told the people of Israel by the inspiration of God that after him would come a prophet like him and that Israel should listen to that prophet. So ever since the days of Moses, Israel was on the lookout for this prophet who would be like Moses, whom they should listen to. Right now, these Israelites in the days of Jesus say, he's the one. And why did they believe that he was the one? Because even though the scriptures did not say it specifically, it was commonly believed among many of the Jewish people of that time that one of the reasons you would know it was the prophet that Moses announced was that he would feed Israel miraculously just as Moses did in the wilderness. Matter of fact, there were some people who believed that manna would return to Israel when the Messiah came back. And so when they saw Jesus, who seemed to be like a combination of a bread factory and a fish processing plant on two legs, they said, this must be the guy. He fed us miraculously, just like Moses did. This must be the prophet whom Moses spoke of. This is the guy, and they got excited about it. Now, I want you to notice something. And before we go on to verse um, 15, they were very impressed with Jesus. Why? Because of what Jesus gave them. Bread and fish in their belly. And friends, there was nothing wrong with what Jesus gave them. And there was nothing wrong with them being impressed by what Jesus gave them. But friends, there is something in there that's relevant to us today that we just need to comment on at the very least. And this is what we need to observe. They were interested in Jesus because of what he could give them, not for who he was within himself. Now, when I talk to you about this just for this minute or two, I want to be very careful and I almost want to grab the words before they get out to your ears. Because I don't want anybody to walk away from here thinking, Jesus doesn't want to help me. Jesus doesn't want to bless me. Jesus doesn't want to give unto me. Friends, he does. Jesus loves you. He cares for you. He wants to meet your needs, both spiritual and practical. Jesus loves to move in your life. But... We understand that as we follow Jesus, we don't want to fall in love with the gifts that he gives. We want to put our love upon the giver of the gifts. You know why? 
Because sometimes when we put our focus upon what Jesus gives us, he will disappoint us in our expectation. And I have known people who said, well, Jesus didn't come through me this, I'm done with him. Friends, we need to love Jesus and surrender our life to him because he's God. Because he's Lord of all. Because he's the way, the truth, and the life. And no man comes to the Father but by him. And I want you to expect God to move mighty ways in your life and to be grateful for every gift that he gives you. Do that, but please make that separation in your heart, and I want to make it in my heart, to say, Jesus, I don't want to love you only for what you give to me. I want to love you for who you are in yourself. All right, now moving on to verse 15. It says, therefore, when Jesus perceived that they were about to come and take him away by force to make him king... He departed again to the mountain by himself alone. Whoa, there's two very big things that happen in verse 15. The first big thing that happens in verse 15 is that the crowd is about to come and take him by force to make him king. Did you notice that phrase in verse 15? The crowd was going to take Jesus by force, whether he was willing or not, and make him king. You see, for a long time, there had been an anticipation that the Messiah would come to Israel. And that expectation kept building and building. But the kind of Messiah they wanted was they didn't want a Messiah who would go around and minister to the weak and the hurting and the needy. They didn't want a Messiah who would lay down his own life and self-sacrifice. They wanted a Messiah who would lead a triumphant assault upon the Roman occupiers and oppressors and defeat them. And when they saw the miraculous associated with Jesus, they said, he's our guy. Let's recognize him as king, whether he wants it or not. Now, I can imagine that a lot of Jesus' disciples, when they heard this, let's make him king, let's make him king, let's make him king further. I can imagine a lot of Jesus' disciples said, hot dog, that's exactly what we've been waiting for. (laughs) I I mean, isn't that why you kind of got in the disciple business? So that when your master was exalted in his position, you would be exalted right along with him. They're saying, that's great. This is what we've been working for. Yes, thank you, God. They're finally beginning to see it, that Jesus is who he says he is. He's king. He's Messiah. Now let's start this great big Jesus is king approach, and then we'll take on those Romans. Jesus, you've got the miraculous power to do it. If you could make a a meal for more than 5,000 people out of five small loaves and two small fishes, Jesus, you could do it. Nevertheless, notice what Jesus did. And this is the second remarkable thing in verse 15. It says at the end of verse 15, he departed again to the mountain by himself alone. Friends, Jesus was not into fame the way we think of it in the modern world. Jesus was not impressed or he was not seduced by a crowd that wanted to make him king. As a matter of fact, when they offered an earthly kingdom to him, you know what Jesus said? Jesus thought within his mind, that's a temptation of the devil and I won't have anything to do with it. Because the devil offered him an earthly kingdom, did he not, when Jesus was in the wilderness? Jesus learned to say no to that temptation in the wilderness. And he says no to an earthly kingdom again right here. So he turned his back on the crowd. And instead of going and doing what the crowd wanted him to do, he went alone to his father in prayer. Because Jesus was more concerned about spending time with his father than hearing the adulation of the crowd. Friends, this is high and holy ground to walk on, is it not? But this is how Jesus lived his life. 
So Jesus said to the crowd, no, I don't want any part of it. The time is not right. I have a kingdom, but you guys don't understand it. I am a king, but you haven't comprehended it. The time is not right. Let me withdraw. It's more important for me to be with my father than with the applause of the crowds. And he withdrew. But that's not the only thing he did. Verse 16 and 17 tells us the next thing that he did with his disciples. It says, now when evening came... His disciples went down to the sea, got into the boat, and went over to the sea towards Capernaum. And it was already dark, and Jesus had not come to them. Friends, what we're going to take a look at in the next few verses is a miracle that's described in three Gospels. In Matthew, in Mark, and in John. For some reason, Luke did not include it in his account. And it is the second time that Jesus came to his disciples on the Sea of Galilee. Do you remember the first time? The first time when Jesus came to the sea with the disciples on the Sea of Galilee, Jesus was in the boat asleep. Do you remember that one? And there was a storm raging about, and the disciples were panicked. My heavens, what are we going to do? Jesus, don't you care that we're perishing? Jesus stood up, and what did he do? He rebuked the storm, and instantly it went calm. And the disciples, who were afraid of the storm, were even more afraid when they saw the power of Jesus at work. That was the first encounter on the Sea of Galilee. This is the second one, but the second one's different. In the second one, Jesus is not with his disciples in the boat. Jesus is up on a mountain praying. We know that from the Gospel of Mark. He sent his disciples away. Now, why did he send his disciples away? Well, obviously, he wanted to meet up with them later. I have a theory. I can't prove it. But I think that Jesus sent his disciples away because he did not want them getting the make Jesus king now fever. The disciples thought, yeah, this is great. Jesus said, no, you guys don't understand. Get away from this crowd that wants to make me king. So he says, I want you guys to go. Matter of fact, the gospel of Mark tells us very specifically that Jesus commanded his disciples, you get in that boat and you cross the Sea of Galilee. I will meet up with you later. The disciples do it. Now, listen, many of the disciples were trained fishermen upon that very lake. They knew what they were doing. It didn't make them afraid to go sailing at night. They got in the boat and they started to go across and they made their way doing exactly what Jesus told them to do. Again, and we get ready for a second encounter with Jesus on the Sea of Galilee. But in some ways it was like the first because look at verse 18. It tells us, then the sea arose because a great wind was blowing. Friends, I don't need to get into the whole geography of the Holy Land, but I will tell you this. The Sea of Galilee is 600 feet below sea level. Isn't that strange? A beautiful body of water with fish and everything in it, 600 feet below sea level, and it's separated from the Mediterranean Sea, which isn't all that far away, by a range of mountains. When a storm comes from the west over the Mediterranean and sweeps over those mountains, down in that 600 feet below sea level, the winds can come fast and furious and whip up the Sea of Galilee very quickly and very violently. This is well known to this day. Matter of fact, um, in some of the tours to Israel that I've taken, I've been on the Sea of Galilee when it's been stormy. Now, no big wind and waves that I had to stand up and calm the storm, <laughs> which I don't have the faith to do anyway, so I'll tell you right then. But, but I've been on the Sea of Galilee where suddenly it started to hail. And it was scary, and everybody's thinking, wow, what's going to happen? Look, I knew it was going to happen. The captain was just going to keep driving the boat, and everything was fine. 
No big waves, no big scary things. But on this occasion, the wind was blowing fiercely. And by the way, the wind would be coming from the west. They would be going across towards the west. The wind would be right in their face. You couldn't have the sails up. You had to row across. And even though they weren't going across the very longest part of the lake, the work was very hard and the wind was in their face. And it was a very difficult duty. What were they going to do? The storm came up and verse 19 says... So when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and drawing near the boat, and they were afraid. There they are, rowing about three or four miles. That's five or six kilometers for our European friends. And there they are going across the Sea of Galilee, rowing, straining at the oars. Now, We know approximately the kind of distance that they were covering on the Sea of Galilee. This means that they were a little more than halfway across to their destination. And they had been rowing all night. When this story ends, it's about daybreak. For hours upon hours, there they are rowing into the very stiff, strong wind, buffeted by the waves. It's a scary situation. But it's not just that. It's not just the fear. It's the frustration. What do I mean by that? Friends, have you ever worked very hard at something and made very little progress? That's not nice, is it? You know, most of us, we don't mind hard work if we can see immediate results. Hard work with little or no results, it makes us frustrated and discouraged very quickly. So there are the disciples. Their muscles are straining at the oars. Their hands are bloody from the constant contact upon the oars. Their faces are dripping with sweat because they're working so hard. They're working hard. They're very frustrated. No progress is being made. But here's what I want you to understand. Why were they even on the boat? Because Jesus commanded them to be. Can I share with you kind of a scary thought? You can be right in the center of Jesus' will for you, and it's very frustrating and very tiring. That, that goes against the way we oftentimes think of Christians. The way we often think of Christians, think as Christians, I should say, is we think along these lines. If I'm in God's will, everything's easy. If I'm in God's will, everything's happy. Friends, these disciples were right in the middle of Jesus' will, and it was hard, and it was frustrating, and they were giving their utmost effort, and it seemed to accomplish very little, if nothing. There they are straining at the oars. They're working as hard as they can, but you saw it right there in verse 19, when they had rowed three or four miles. Now, there's one other dynamic I need to tell you about, and we know this from the Gospel of Mark. Jesus was up on the hillside praying for them. Jesus was not with them in the boat, but all those hours that they're straining, Jesus had not forgotten about them. He's up on the hillside. He can see them down on the lake, and he is praying for his disciples until he decides the time has come. They've struggled long enough. I'm going to go down and visit them. And in the way that only Jesus could do, he came and he took a little walk on the Sea of Galilee to visit them. Now, did I just say in a way that only Jesus could do? Because did not Jesus on this very same occasion, John doesn't tell us about it, but Matthew does, on this very same occasion was when Peter asked, can I get out of the boat and meet you, Jesus? And Peter, he walked on the water. Now we know it was just for a few steps and then he sank. 
But what, why do we give Peter a little bit of credit for walking on the water instead of just paying attention to the, how he sank? It was an amazing thing that he walked on the water at all. But again, he took his eyes off Jesus, put his eyes on the storm. He began to sink. And we notice that he and the other disciples, it says right there in verse 19, that they saw Jesus walking on the sea and they were afraid. Friends, I don't think they needed to be afraid. Matter of fact, later, and it's recorded in the other Gospels, Jesus rebukes their fear. And one of the reasons why he rebuked their fear is because Jesus gave them reason to not be afraid. What do I mean by that? Okay, where had they just come from? The feeding of the 5,000. What was left over after the feeding of the 5,000? 12 big baskets of bread. Now, I don't know if they took all 12 baskets of bread, but don't you think they took some of them? They had evidence of, they had wonder bread right there on board, (laughs) evidence of Jesus's miraculous power right there on the boat that they could look at. And they should have been encouraged to say, Jesus, if you did that miracle, you could do this miracle. We are in the center of your will. We are obeying you. We trust in you. Instead, when Jesus came to them in an unexpected way, and I would say walking on the water was an unexpected way, they were afraid. So what does Jesus do? Look at verse 20. But he said to them, it is I, do not be afraid. Isn't that a beautiful word? Friends, Jesus just simply saying this. It is I, do not be afraid. I am with you, don't be afraid. My presence is here, don't be afraid. Matter of fact, I'm absolutely convinced that for at least one person here this morning, that is the word of God to you right now in your present circumstance. You need to hear this from God. Jesus says to you, I am here present with you. It is I. Don't be afraid. Just stop it. You've been afraid. You've been worrying. You've been fretful about a dozen different things. And maybe some of them are worthy. Some of them are. But listen, let me tell you something. You need to stop your worry because Jesus is present with you right now, even in the midst of your suffering. It is I. Do not be afraid. Relax, guys. Jesus is present with you. He won't allow his own to perish. He cares for them. And friends, it is always beautiful when Jesus reveals himself to us in the midst of the storm and he tells us, do not be afraid. Friends, it isn't difficult to apply this to our lives, is it? I mean, not only did this actually happen on the Sea of Galilee, but but sort of as a picture, as a metaphor, it shows us how Jesus connects to our life. Sometimes Jesus will send you and I right there into the midst of the storm. And you'll go into it by obedience. And you'll strain at the oars. And you'll be exhausted. And you'll wonder if there's any good behind it. And Jesus says to you in the midst of that, it is I. Do not be afraid. I'm with you. I'm present with you. Don't be discouraged. It's okay that your muscles ache. It's okay that the sweat goes down your brow. It's okay that your hands are bloody from the oars. That's all right. I am with you in the midst of it. You keep going. Matter of fact, look what happens in verse 21. It says, then they willingly received him into the boat and immediately the boat was at the land where they were going. Friends, there may be two thirds across the lake to their destination. Rowing all night, making very little progress. They're sore, they're tired, they're discouraged. They are not only afraid, they are frustrated But when Jesus comes to them in the midst of all of that, what do they do? Did you see that phrase in verse 21? It says, they willingly received him into the boat. 
Friends, sometimes I'm so amazed at the gentlemanly reserve of Jesus. Jesus could have just said, you know what? I'll just keep walking right on beside you guys. I'll just hang out for you for a while. No, they said, Jesus, we receive you into the boat. And friends, there's a strange thing about Jesus. Is that rarely, I will not say never. I'll just say rarely. I I cannot say never because there's some times when Jesus doesn't really follow this particular playbook. But rarely does Jesus force himself in a situation. Rarely does he, so to speak, break the door down and bust in. Sometimes he does. And listen, he's God. He has every right to do so. If he chooses to do so, fine, Jesus, you know what you're doing. But you know what Jesus does most of the time? He stands by the door and he knocks. What does Jesus do most of the time? He stands beside the boat and he says, are you willing to receive me in it? Even walking on the Sea of Galilee, he waited for his disciples' willingness to bring him inside the boat, and he would not go until he was invited. Are you thinking right now about what particular aspect of your life Jesus stands outside of and sort of knocks or sort of waits by the boat, and he says, I'd really like to come into this, but I am waiting for your invitation. You've been waiting for Jesus to break the door down. And friends, sometimes he does. I'm not saying he never does that. But normally, often, he says, I'll come when you invite me into it. When you willingly receive me into the boat, then I'll be in it. And so what did they do? They willingly received Jesus in the boat. And I wonder how he got in. I don't know if he just sort of, you know, swung one leg over the other, or whether he hopped in or something like that. After he was walking on the water, I don't quite get it. But did you see in verse 21 what happened as soon as he got into the boat? Friends, this is mind-blowing. This is a miracle of God. Look at it, verse 21. I'm not making this up. Immediately the boat was at the land where they were going. I don't know if Jesus imported through time travel, hydrofoil technology or something like that. I I don't know if this was a miracle of, you know, a horizontal rapture or carrying. I don't know what it was. But to the disciples' perception, as soon as Jesus got in the boat and presumably was seated, bam, that rest of the third or so distance they were across the lake, another mile or so, another mile and a half, they were instantly there. And friends, that is a miracle of God, isn't it? Now, I always like to put myself in the place of the disciples. And here I am, I'm one of the disciples in the boat, and I go, you know, Jesus, if you really wanted to get us across the lake, why didn't you just get in our boat at the very beginning and just, whoom, right across the lake at once? Why did I have to row all night leaving me with aching muscles, a sweaty brow, and a few blood blisters on my hands. Why, Jesus? And don't you see? It wasn't just about getting them across the lake. It was about what Jesus would do in the life and the character of his disciples. Friends, I say this as your pastor. There are times where God in his wisdom will let you struggle. There are times when God in his wisdom will let you strain against the oars 
And it doesn't mean he's abandoned you. It doesn't mean that he's lost his side on you. It doesn't mean that he is not with you in his presence. It means that there is a good and even sacred purpose in the struggle that he lets you go through at that moment. Why don't you just embrace it and put your eyes on Jesus? Because you know what? As soon as the time is right, it's easy enough for God to do a miracle and bring you to your destination. And isn't that what he has promised to do? Can I make another analogy about this? Doesn't this have an analogy, sort of a metaphor for our whole life? Here we are through our whole life, from the day we're born to the day we pass to the world beyond. We struggle, we strain, we press against the oars. And that's what it is, isn't it? I mean, look, life's a battle. I'm not saying that we don't have the good times or the fun times or the pleasant times. We thank God that he gives us plenty of those along the way. But there's a struggle involved in life. But let me tell you something. That day when we pass from this world to the next, you're going to wake up and immediately the boat is going to be at the destination. You, you don't have to wait. It's going to be there miraculously and quickly and right there. And you will pass into God's harbor in his heavenly kingdom and you will be there with him. That's his promise. So for now, we say, Jesus, thank you. I don't know if you're up on the hillside praying for me in the midst of my struggle. I don't know if you're walking right beside me. But Jesus, I welcome you into my present struggle right now. And I trust when the miracle is necessary, you'll bring me to my destination exactly as I need. And don't forget this. They had what they needed to understand the miracle of God right at that moment. They had the bread in the boat. Wouldn't it be nice if God gave you such a visible sign of his love and his care? Wouldn't it be good if God could somehow speak to you through a piece of bread and say, I love you. Look at my power. Look at what I've done for you. Isn't it wonderful that right now we can come to the table of the Lord and have communion together? And friends, we're going to pass around trays with a piece of bread on them. What we want you to do is take a piece of bread and hold it and look at it and say, Jesus, this is evidence of your miraculous power to me. You have given me reason to believe, just as you gave those disciples reason to believe with bread in a boat. We're going to give you reason to believe with bread on a tray. And you take a piece of bread and you say, Jesus, you do love me. You are filled with power. You are filled with majesty. In just a moment, I'm going to pray. When I pray, the worship team's going to come out and the ushers are going to come forward. And we're going to distribute these, these plates, these trays full of bread. Friends, if you believe that Jesus died for your sins, and if you can receive that bread and that cup in reverence to the Lord, you are welcome to partake of communion among us. If you don't believe... If you reject Jesus and what he did for you on the cross, it would be better to just let the tray pass by. I don't want you to. I want this to be your moment of belief if you haven't believed before. But friends, I want you to see, I'm not just giving you a piece of bread this morning. God gives you a reason to believe something tangible, just like the disciples had. Father, this is our prayer. You know, Lord, your feeding of the 5,000 was an amazing miracle. There's no doubt. But what you did on the cross surpasses that by almost an infinite magnitude. Because, Lord, by one perfect sacrifice, you have provided atonement 
and restoration and deliverance and reconciliation for an innumerable multitude, not just 5,000. So Jesus, we receive it. And we ask now that you would prepare our hearts to receive the bread and the cup and remember your great power. Move in our midst right now. Move upon our hearts, we pray. In your son's name, amen.